0: Welcome to Into the Well. I'm your host, Ryan Wilms. I started this show as a place to share my experiences and my journey towards living authentically and mindfully, and also to learn from those who are truly walking the path, healing themselves and inspiring others. By balancing the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we can learn to live in harmony with ourselves and our environment. We'll be exploring different tools and modalities used to create sustainable well-being for a fulfilling life. So thank you for joining me. On this episode, I got a chance to sit down and chat with Mark Woollen. He is the founder of the Family Constellation Institute and author of a really amazing book called It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. I attended one of his workshops in LA uh, last fall and it was a really powerful experience for myself. And um, after that, then I read his book and uh, it really opened my eyes to connecting some dots with myself, my mom, my father, and he provides a lot of practical tools for how we can begin to nurture ourselves, be our own parents and tap into that sort of unconditional love. Uh, He really ties a lot of super interesting research and science into practical methods and how we can break these cycles. And also just learning about the ways that our trauma patterns can connect generations into the past is really interesting and worth exploring. Um, It was a really fun conversation to have. He really knows his stuff and brings a really um, positive optimism and enthusiasm to his work, which is really inspiring and energizing as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode and thanks again. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Mark. I really appreciate, um, you coming on the podcast and chatting with me. Um, I first got introduced to your work through my mom, actually, who's living in Victoria and she has gone to a couple of the family constellation workshops and brought a bunch of our family members over the last, um, six to 12 months, I think. So It's uh, been really cool to learn about yourself and your work. So thanks again for the time today.
1: Oh, I'm happy to be here, Ryan.
0: Um, so I guess, you know, just for a little bit of context, uh, your sort of story about how you got into this type of work and, um, you know, that losing your, the sight in your eyes and then sort of surrendering to that as things were sort of unfolding would be great to to hear a little a little bit more about that, if you don't mind sharing to start with.
1: Not at all. It takes me back into ancient history. <laughs> but, but nearly 30 years ago, I began to lose the sight in one of my eyes and um you know i i was pretty freaked out i <laughs> it was uh, i was diagnosed with a chronic form of retinopathy um for which there was no cure and because of the way it was progressing um the doctors told me i'd likely lose the vision in my other eye as well and i was pretty desperate to find help and uh everything i tried seemed to make it worse you know i'd try juice fasts or Uh, acupuncture, or or supplements, or hands-on healing, and it just kept getting worse and worse. um, Ultimately, I went on a search for healing, not knowing what I was going to find or where I was going to go, but a search that led me uh, halfway around the globe, literally as far as Indonesia, where I learned from several wise teachers who taught me some fundamental principles, one of which was the importance of uh, he- healing my relationship with my parents, but before I could do that, I had to heal what stood in the way, although i didn 't know it at the time, which would be inherited family trauma, specifically the anxiety I had inherited from all my grandparents who were orphaned. you know three of them lost their mothers when they were infants or toddlers, and the fourth lost her dad when she was one, ultimately her mother too, because her mother would have been grieving. And this anxiety, this was the real cause of my vision loss. And so as my parents had inherited from their parents, I had also inherited this feeling of being broken from a mother's love. Re- remember, all the mothers are died when they're babies. Mm-hmm. And so this was what had been passed down in my family. I remember, you know, even as a small boy, maybe, you know, five or six, feeling panicked whenever my mother would leave the house. I'd run into her room, I'd open the drawers, I'd pull out her scarves and cry into her scarves and nightgowns, thinking that I'd never see her again, and that her smell would be the only thing I had left, w- which would have been true for my grandparents. That's, mm-hmm. They would have probably had a garment, and that, w- that would have been it. That's the only thing left of my mom. Forty years later, I, I shared that with my mom, and she, it was funny. She told me she did the exact same thing. When her mother left the house, she would cry into her mother's clothes. Clothes, and uh, my sister, even reading my book, said, "Honey, I did the same thing when mum would leave the house." And I realized it was a family pattern. We all believed we'd never see our mother again, and uh, we weep into her clothes. And after healing the broken bond that I had with my mom, a strange thing happened. Ryan, my my sight came back. And I, you know, I didn't didn't know it would, I didn't expect it to. And then afterwards, I felt compelled to share these principles that I learned and ultimately developed a method for healing the effects of inherited family trauma.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty powerful story. And, you know, it's, I think with people that have sort of experienced this, uh, you know, different sorts of chronic illnesses and trying to heal them. You know, might be more familiar with that idea of something like that relationship with your mother relating to losing sight in your eyes, and you know, usually that seems to happen over a period of time. And now, in hindsight, are you able to sort of see other ways in which that was manifesting in your life leading up to that more sort of oh, traumatic sure. loss? Oh,
1: sure. It was in my relationships where I was terrified of closeness. I w- I would either leave them or find a reason that they weren't working and. Um, it was in my physicality. I was nervous every time. I remember being a teenager. If I would kiss a woman, you know, she—I would be shaking and trembling, and telling my body, "Stop shaking! Stop shaking!" Without realizing that here I am reliving the effects of this trauma that was my own, my parents, and my grandparents. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, really to put it in context um, for the listener. Um, inherited family trauma, what is it? You know, it's when something traumatic happens to our parents and our grandparents. Let's say they lost their mother or father when they were young or they were sent away or they were, you know, to boarding school or placed in an orphanage or um, foster care or one of their siblings died tragically and it pulled the mother's, you know, sanity um, uh, into a ball. You know, collapsing the family, the reaction doesn't necessarily stop with the person who had the trauma. The feelings and the sensations, specifically the stress response, can be passed down to children and grandchildren. And now we know there's biological evidence for this. And it's become a exciting new field, epigenetics, inherited trauma, and I guess, you know, unbeknownst to me, as I was writing the book, all this science started pouring in at the right time as I was putting the book together. And it was an exciting time, because here I was uh, started with a chapter that was relatively small. And then as the science poured in, it's the largest chapter in the book of how um, we now know that there is biological evidence or inherited family trauma, and I'm happy to talk about what we know, if you'd like.
0: Yeah, no, I think that it is a really interesting part of it, and a lot of the you know work that you communicate is bringing that scientific piece to it because it does feel like it makes it a lot more tangible than just this idea of like an ener- energetic transfer or imprinting. But I, and I think one of the simple things that you've spoken about is how. um Direct that can be with our like the embryo in our grandmother being passed into our mother and obviously us coming from those eggs as well is like that kind of makes it very real in a sense
1: you know just because you're you're bringing it up and i'm I'm glad you are, I'd like to tell the listener about the science you know we were born into these feelings, we don't quite understand it you know we they used to think that we would enter the world with a clean hard drive to use a computer analogy. But that's not true. We're finding there's this operating system, if you will, that's already in place that contains the fallout of the traumas of our parents and grandparents. And then here we are born with fears and feelings and that don't belong to us, and we don't make the link. And you know, we we have to look at the science because it's it's so it's exciting. And I I stay close to the science when I teach. I stay close to the science when I train. And as well, when I give workshops, Uh, let me dig into that right now. Um, When a a trauma happens, it changes us. Literally, it causes a chemical change in our DNA. And this changes the way our genes function, sometimes for generations. So technically, there's a chemical tag or an information signal or an epigenetic tag, whatever you want to call it, that attaches to our DNA and tells the cell um, to use or ignore certain genes because of this thing that just happened, so we can better deal with it. And then the way our genes are affected, this will change how we act or how we feel. For example, um, we can become sensitive or reactive to situations that are similar to this original trauma, even if it occurred in a past generation. So that we physiologically have a better chance of surviving it in this generation, um, I'll give an example. If our grand, grandparents come from a war-torn country, and there's bombs going off, there's men lining people up in the the street, people being shot, people in uniforms, um, you know, doing terrible things, bullets flying, our you know our relatives, our town members being hung, killed, our grandparents would develop inside, physiologically, a skill set of sharper reflexes, quicker reaction times, let's say, reactions to this violence to help them and then later us survive this trauma that they experienced. The problem is we're inheriting their stress response, but sometimes with the dials set to 10, And here we are not born in a wartime situation and we're constantly hypervigilant or preparing for this catastrophe that never arrives. And, and we, and we're not making the link. You and I aren't making the link that our anxiety, our depression, our shutdown is connected to our parents and grandparents. We're just, we just think we're wired this way. Yeah, uh, and you know, there's all this evidence. You know, I could talk about some of the studies that, that's happening in universities and w- what we're doing with mice. And I'm happy to do that if if you want me to. But I want to put it back in your hands and see where you want yeah, to go. Yeah,
0: well, I think I think that's such an interesting idea. And um, you know, your your example there of you know our our relatives coming from a war-torn country is obviously a common one but it is an extreme one and i think like the idea of ptsd is usually sort of um related to something like war but I, it seems like from what i've learned in reality we can have that sort of ptsd reaction from much more you know common experiences i remember watching a film where somebody was diagnosed with ptsd from being diagnosed with cancer so sort of un- understanding like yeah. how and- often that happens and we're sort of inheriting those sorts of, that sort of stress response to these events that, you know, aren't so extreme or don't feel so far removed from our reality.
1: What I find, Ryan, is that no matter what traumas happen in the generations, you know, traumas happening to our parents and grandparents, it it often blocks the flow of Mm -hmm. love, constricts constricts the, the ability to parent so that itself can create um, great trauma so even if our grandmother lost a sibling when she was a little girl and lost her mother's love because the mother's was grieving and then our mother was in the hospital with uh, her tonsils being taken out for a week when she was four or we were in an incubator or even before we were born mom lost uh a, a miscarriage mom had a miscarriage and then thought we would die too just like you're saying these typical events these more mundane events more mm-hmm. mundane than war are creating a great profound amount of ptsd so even if our you know we're in utero and our parents are splitting up that affects us even if uh mom almost ejects the baby um And is told that she has to spend the last uh, three months in bed with her feet up because uh, the the, her body physiologically isn't able to hold the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. These create traumas. If our dad is drinking, our mom and dad are cheating. um, Mom and dad are unhappy. um, uh, We're we're born with a difficult labor. Uh, There's a difficult delivery. We're put in an incubator. We're jaundiced. Uh, Mom and dad. Mom goes into the hospital after our birth. Um, They take a vacation too early. These events, as seemingly mundane as we would think, can cause great trauma that we can be born into without realizing that, oh, uh, of course I was in an incubator for two weeks being a preemie. I didn't know that would affect me, but it has a massive effect. So, yes, you're right, exactly. It's not just war, it's parents fighting, parents separating, uh, uh, physical events during the pregnancy, difficult labors, difficult deliveries, so on and so forth. I
0: wonder um, as well with regards to that. And, like, you know, once we're sort of in utero and coming into existence in that way, we are then uh, open to being imprinted with these different traumas and different sort of. Genetics and whatnot, and then uh, that obviously carries on into being born and as we grow up. I wonder, like, what is the sort of most fertile window for that imprinting?
1: Well, as the researchers talk about our father, let's let's talk about Mm -hmm. both our mom and our dad. Um, Our father is is sperm is replicating up until the point that it uh, articulates with the egg and you know were created in the embryo effects on the embryo so dad's stress dad's trauma dad's wartime trauma dad's car accident trauma dad's uh, boarding school trauma dad's loss of his mother or or loss of his father trauma all of this can be can live in his sperm and he can pass anxiety to his children through the sperm similar To what we're now discovering in mice uh, through a mechanism called small non-coding rna molecules which i'll I'll talk about later Um, you know there's this interesting study just recently that i list on my facebook page coming out of tufts university where they do exactly that where they look at the um the effects of the mother and the father and they see that um well with the father, for example, just like I said, they've discovered that his sperm can pass forward um, his anxiety. And this was in, um, oh boy, it was in Tufts University. That's right, that men suffer trauma as children, pass, can pass their anxiety to the children through their sperm. And this was the first study to show that human sperm Mirrored the same changes, the same non coding RNA changes that were found in mice that we can traumatize in labs mm-hmm. as pups. Um, there's also a recent study in JAMA Psychiatry, Journal of American Medicine Psychiatry, that followed mothers who suffered trauma as children and found that their daughters were more likely to struggle with depression and bipolar disorder. And, you know, these are mm-hmm. all on my Facebook page. That's one of the promises that I do as a new study comes out. I have it on there so that people can follow this new and interesting field. So, um, de- in so much as saying you're talking about this window, dad's sperm, up until the time it's delivered into mom to meet with her egg and form this embryo, um, it can carry the insults, the assaults, the traumas, the effects of his traumas. Now, as you mentioned earlier to me, and you're right when we're when when mom is 5 months a fetus inside grandma's womb so when grandma's 5 months pregnant with our mother and we've known about this for 100 years um, mom's cell line stops dividing so the eggs that mom will ever have will already be in her womb when she's a fetus inside grandmother's womb Mm-hmm. One of those eggs is us. So if you, you know, just even if you feel into it, um, here we are embedded in mom's womb, in grandma's traumas, grandma's loss, her death of grandpa, her suffering, and, and then um, that likely can have effect. Now you add to that the work of Bruce Lipton, who says a mother's emotions can chemically alter the, the, uh, the, the offspring, so the genetic imprint, just you know, just her feelings alone, um, her hate, her rage, her sadness, her depression, this can chemically alter the mm-hmm. gene expression of her offspring, and now you've got, now you've got a whole morass of where mm-hmm. is it coming, when is it coming, you know, because because it can be chemically communicated to the fetus mm-hmm. through the placenta and bio- biochemically alter the genetic expression. Where do these traumas come from? How about like mm,
0: yeah, everywhere? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of opportunity for that trauma to come in. So I have a, yeah. I have a question sort of um, following on from that. That's a bit of an, a personal example, I guess, and something I recently just sort of dug deeply into within myself. Um, so when my mother was pregnant with me, Um, I don't know how far along, but I think fairly far, um, she went skiing and she wiped out and then, um, from then had a worry that there would be something wrong with me. And I just recently sort of uncovered that I've had this deep seated belief in myself that there is something wrong with me. And, you know, very, very much of what I've been doing in my life has been sort of to make up for this blind spot that I'm unaware of this fear that somebody's going to leave me or I'll lose love because that there's something wrong with me and they're going to find that out. So I'm curious to like hear brilliant. how you sort of yeah. explain that or connect those dots.
1: Sure, that's brilliant connection. So mum has this event and she has a ski accident and I'm of course mm-hmm. I'm speaking hypothetically because I'm not in your mum's head, but if she was worried that there was stress to the fetus, her thinking is creating stress her worries, her fear is creating stress that can be translated to cortisol, which can batter the amniotic sac. And all of a sudden, you know, they say they, I even mentioned this in my book that when the mom has a lot of stress, that the baby develops a cortisol busting enzyme just to survive because mom's stress is mm. battering the fetus with, and, and listen to her thought pattern. Oh my God, what did I do? What if I hurt the baby? What if I hurt? What if there's something wrong? What if there's something wrong? Oh my goodness, I don't feel him kicking. I don't feel him kicking. Now all of a sudden, the message, something's wrong with me. It's embedded right there in that event. And it makes complete sense to me that, you know, if you look at what's happening developmentally, the heart is developed within 20 days inside your mom's womb. The neural tube, the neural groove, that which will be your nervous system, is also developed within 20 days. In other words, there's already the first semblance of the nervous system that's in place in that first trimester. So if you're if you're literally in the first mm-hmm. three weeks. So it's imprinting. This will later become the limbic brain, the amygdala. Um, It's already imprinting the events in utero um, from mom's stress, from the cortisol. And just like you said, this could be the inception of a pattern of there must be something wrong with me. Because mom is saying, what if there's something wrong? Mm -hmm. What if I did something? What if this baby doesn't make it? Oh my gosh, I don't feel him kicking. So brilliant
0: connection, Ryan. Brilliant. Yeah, no, that's very interesting for sure. Um, so I wonder, you know, from there, obviously, I mean, this is sort of jumping ahead a little bit, I guess, but now as a 34 year old man and discovering this sort of connection, where would you point somebody like myself from there?
1: Back to heal the bond with mom, Mm -hmm. even if you were really close and it sounds like you're close. Um, so I look at, you know what what is a bond sometimes a baby bonds by receiving from mom which is great because that's a baby's job that's a child's job that's a toddler's job that's a young child's job just to receive but others of us when there's been some type of trauma or event like this bond by taking care or giving and not receiving so that might be the first place i'd look and nothing you have mm-hmm. to answer Right now, but just feeling into. Um, do, do, was it more that I was able to just rest in and receive mom's care? Or was it more I felt an alert in me to make sure she was okay by giving or being oversensitive to her feelings, which sometimes Mm -hmm. becomes a different type of bond. The child doesn't, no longer is bonding by receiving, but bonding by doing. And giving rather than being. So that might be one place I'd look. Um, Another place I'd look is, you know, I might even do a practice with you, oh, like we did in that workshop you attended, where I might have uh, somebody walk with your eyes closed towards your body, um, and that person Mm -hmm. would represent the mom, your mom, and then we would notice, what's the first impulse? That arises in the body. And what's so strange is many people doing this practice, even though they have a great relationship with their mom, recognize that, oh my goodness, my, my sternum tightened, or my, my pelvis tightened, or I jolted back, or even though I love my mom, I dissociated. So they're finding different aspects inside themselves where even though they're really close to their mom, Mm-hmm. There's a way in which they're not receiving. So if that's what we found that you, that even though you were close, you weren't receiving, I might work with you um, with uh, receiving in a visualization. For example, I might say, "Hey, Ryan, I know you're 34, but place a place a photograph of your mom over your left shoulder before you go to sleep at night, and tell your mom, tell the photograph." You're talking to, let's say, Mm -hmm. um, uh, her higher self or or something where this is guided in a deep way. You're saying, hey, mom, I realized we had this event when uh, you were pregnant with me, and I want to heal it. So, mom, I'm going to visualize you holding me at night while I sleep and teaching me how to trust your love, how to receive it, and how to let it in without being worried about your Mm -hmm. feelings or Without taking mm-hmm. care of you. This can be so profound. So, what happens is you're going to sleep at night, the photo of your mom over your sh- left shoulder above your pillow, just with the feeling of receiving. I might even add the words, Mom, I want to heal the bond that mm-hmm. broke in utero from that ski event. So, um, you know, so I'm going to visualize you holding me and me doing nothing but receiving because. I realized that my early relationship was about me caring for you rather than just being and receiving. And I'm not saying any of that's true or Mm -hmm. not true. I'm talking to the listener right now who might have an event where they realized that they were more concerned about mom's feelings and weren't able to relax into mom softening their feelings. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I have a question sort of following up on that. Um so a lot of the work I've been doing and sort of the idea of like self actualizing is, you know, finding that ultimate sort of inner peace and freedom is sort of the process of becoming our own parents and sort of loving ourselves in that way. So I wonder how you sort of relate that to the like the example you just give where it's generally I find a little bit easier to externalize that sort of relationship with the photograph with the idea of our mom and be at the higher self or you know her physical self but at our core are we sort of teaching ourselves how to really receive love from ourselves or is it really that that
1: you're you're very it? in tune with what you're saying okay it's it's very in tune yeah 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 so the practice that that i could give you would be one of two directions one direction is it would be with a photograph of the mum, which is externalizing. And it's receiving the bond externally, in a sense, from mum. But really, you're doing Mm -hmm. the work. It's something in you that's letting that work happen. But then another practice I might give you is having you hold space, hold court, hold the body, hold an opening in your core. And I think we did this in the workshop. Um, where I had people um, hold parts of their bodies that had shut down, dissociated, fragmented, split off, felt anxious, um, became hypoxic, um, hold places in their body that were places of agitation or places of numbness, and um, do an inner practice of holding space for those young parts of us That had fragmented, split off, shut down, or dissociated. Maybe by even adding words uh, into this visualization, Mm -hmm. like words such as, I've got you. It's safe to return home to our body. I'll breathe with you until we integrate as one. Or I'll hold you so you don't have to hold our body so tightly. Mm -hmm. Or, I'll breathe with you until you you little parts of me feel held and seen and safe and going even deeper I'll breathe with you until we can feel flow in our body until we can feel vitality in our body until we can feel uh, a sense of uh, pulsing warmth buzzing calm opening spreading, softening Mm -hmm. in our body. And so in that sense, we are the Mm -hmm. parent, parenting ourselves. So there there are different options, you know, taking off, let's go from the ski Mm -hmm. drama all the way back. You have two different options as to pieces of work. One might be through the photograph of her, which is still you doing you, or one might be holding those young parts that can't receive or holding those young parts that feel there's something wrong with me through that communicated through that message or holding those young parts into a greater sense of awareness of me holding me until i soften and integrate as one mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or until that truck goes drives
0: by <laughs> <laughs> yeah Yeah. So, I mean, that truck going by driving by could definitely, you know, spark that sort of cortisol stress reaction. But I imagine through doing this sort of practice, that's where we're able to change our own genetics and activate or deactivate some of those chronic stress uh, reactions.
1: So well put and exactly right. So something as simple as a truck driving by or a person in uniform Or a very big and tall person, because, you know, we were little when a trauma happened or happened to our mom, uh, or a dad. And so just something innocuous, like the sound of a car backfiring or a truck driving by can cause these, um, secretions in our body, this, this cortisol, uh, event and this cascading event. And then just as you're saying, that gives us an opportunity to place our hands on our body where we feel activated and then reparent as we've been using that word in and of mm-hmm. ourselves by saying, Okay, little parts of me, or little parts of me I've inherited from my mom or my mm-hmm. dad, um, little parts of me, or this little parts of our family that live in me, um, I've got you, you're safe, and I'll breathe with you until we can calm down, until we can um, soften until we can feel vitality once again flowing in our body
0: mm-hmm. well put yeah i really like those those little simple sentences for for holding ourselves i think that's really powerful and it's definitely something i was doing after the workshop that we had um but but with many oh, things you know it's easy to let those practices slip away so this is a good reminder to start implementing some of that again
1: well you know one of the things in, in chapter 10 of my book i List um, a lot of those practices and, and many of those healing sentences because what I found is that we've got to revisit. You know, I tell people in the workshop or in my or when I work with them online or in my trainings, we've got to do something. Uh, neuroscience,ly speaking, we've got to do something six times a day for at least a minute each time till our amygdala learns that we're holding down the inner fort. So it doesn't have to send out the alarm signals to the alarm towers and say, tighten, 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 or leave the body, or activate, we're not safe. Instead, if it sees us in here, in our bodies, softening, quieting, uh, uh, flowing, tingling, the amygdala can say, oh, he's in there, um, enough, so I don't have to send out. Any alarm bells to the alarm towers mm-hmm. of the body he's got it he 's got it because mm-hmm. you're saying it you're actually saying i've got it i've got this yeah yeah six to- the rule the rule for me six times a day uh, at least a minute each time doing a practice like this
0: yeah, and I mean committing six minutes a day doesn't seem like too much of a commitment, but you know, it might, still might be surprisingly challenging. Yeah, well,
1: <laughs> yeah, we've got to do something, or we're living. But some of us, of course, as we know, are addicted to the drama mm-hmm. of the trauma and addicted to the rep. We don't mean to be. but it's just we, we think we can use the mind um, to, to think ourselves mm-hmm. out of these feelings. And, and it becomes almost a, a, an avid addiction. When in reality, we need to be in the body, um, uh, away from the thinking, into an an experience of just experiencing Mm. energy, energetic sensations, sensory experiences. And that takes us out of the trauma, not thinking our way out, which we Mm -hmm. can become addicted to, but feeling our way um, into an inner peace, which Mm -hmm. is the experience. You know, this is this is how we heal. It's age-old, 5,000-year-old um, yeah. wisdom of combining what I like to call the Holy Trinity, the other Holy Trinity, sensation, breath, and awareness. Mm-hmm. Once we can combine feeling the sensations and bringing our breath to those sensations with the awareness of, I've got you, I've got you, I'm here, we can change the brain, the stress response, which we've either inherited or got activated in utero.
0: utero. Yeah, even you just speaking about that sort of reminded me of the quote that we can't solve a problem with the same consciousness that created it or the same level of consciousness that created the problem. And so, yeah, exactly. Einstein, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Getting out of the mind into that sort of deeper sensation consciousness can allow us to sort of move beyond that. But I think it's also interesting that idea of being sort of addicted to um, suffering or, you know, identifying with whatever our maybe chronic illness might be, becoming like wrapped up in what our identity is of ourselves and relinquishing that into this unknown version of ourselves can be a really scary thing to do as well.
1: So well put. That's exactly right. We sometimes the hardest thing is to give up the identity of the suffering or the thinking. We don't Mm -hmm. mean to do it. It's not not like we know we're doing it. It's just this identity of of, uh, me as sick, me as blind, me as uh, anxious, me as uh, uh, troubled, and just going beyond the construct, the ego construct of me as anything. But just feeling into the vastness of the possibilities of, of the body and letting the body uh, bring us into the place of uh, stillness, really. And at the heart of stillness, this energetic feeling of um, consciousness. you know, when people say, "I'll say, "What are you feeling at this moment?" And they'll say, "Stillness." And I, I might say, "So when you go into stillness, what's the energetic feeling? feeling of stillness. And of course, there's flow and there's buzzing and there's warmth and there's opening. You know, there's so much to be explored in the inner realm of the body that when we leave the mind, we can bring ourselves into a place of, of, of mm-hmm. something grand, really we can then teach our kids
0: too. So I think, you know, one of the super interesting pieces of your work is the idea of core language and identifying trauma language. And I wonder sort of correlating that to the body and the physical experience, do you notice any sort of common links between if somebody has an issue in their stomach or their eyes or their throat or their heart to any sort of specific experience or type of trauma?
1: it's a great question. Um, Let me, let me go at it this way. Let me first just explain to the listener when, Mm -hmm. when I talk about core language or trauma language, what I'm talking about, there are two types. There's a verbal language and a nonverbal language. So when trauma happens to us, you know, I've learned that there are clues left behind in the form of emotionally charged words and sentences. And they form a breadcrumb trail that if we learn how to listen to it or follow it can reveal this missing piece of the puzzle that lets the whole picture come into view and can give us a context of why we're feeling shut down, why we're feeling anxious. And we know, when we those of us who study trauma theory, we know that during a traumatic event, significant information bypasses the frontal lobes. So the experience of the trauma, the experience of exactly what happened, it can't be named or ordered through words. Because our language centers become compromised. And without language, our experiences are stored as fragments of words or memory or body sensations or images or emotions. It's like the mind during a trauma disperses. And everything gets separate. Essential elements get separated. We lose the story. And what remains are these pieces of language or emotions or sensations. In a way, we never complete the healing. So, the job of our job really is to gather this language, both verbal and nonverbal, and then to um, uh, connect, link it together and connect the dots. Um, So, we can bring together what's been lost or separated in our family or in our early childhood, or we can separate out what doesn't belong to us, grandma's feeling of going crazy because she was in an institution, or we can integrate or, or dad's feeling of I'll do something terrible because he caused a car accident when he was drunk. And we have the feeling, I'll do something terrible. Uh, or we can integrate what needs to be integrated, which you, what you and I were talking about earlier, integrated these young fragmented parts of us that were never integrated. So a trauma language is both verbal mm-hmm. and nonverbal. When, it, when it's verbal, there's a sentence like, uh, I'll harm my child. I have a fear I'll harm my child or I'll go crazy or I'm a terrible person or I don't deserve to live or it's all my fault. You know, that's verbal. But when it's nonverbal, Ryan, we look for the physical and emotional symptoms that show up after an unsettling event. Similar to what you and I talked about in utero, you know, mom has the ski accident. She says, there's, uh-oh, there could be something wrong with the pregnancy. And in a generation later, the Mm -hmm. baby feels there's something wrong. So we, we look for also fears and anxieties that strike suddenly when we reach a particular age. Often it's the same age uh, that something happened in our, that something traumatic happened in our family history. Um, for example, at 30, we have the feeling of our life just caving in. And it's the same age that our dad lost Our mom or grandma became a widow. You know, we don't think to look that these ages are often what I like to call Mm -hmm. an ancestral alarm clock Mm -hmm. ringing uh, repeatedly at these ages in in our history. Or we look for depressions or destructive behaviors that arise after a situation that's similar to a trauma in our family history. So nonverbal language can be any of these. It can also be mirrored in our relationship struggles or in our relationship choices where we keep choosing a partner who will hurt us or, or it, nonverbal trauma can be show up repeatedly in the ways we deal with money or success. Mm-hmm. Let me tell a really quick case because I think that'll okay. best describe what I'm talking about. Really simple. Uh, I can do it in a few sentences. Recently, I worked with this woman um, who was diagnosed with cancer a few months after her dog died. And I asked her, so tell me about your dog dying, because she told me she thought her cancer was linked to her dog dying. And here's the verbal language that she gave me. I was with him. For 16 years, he was everything to me. And so I write that language down as we're talking. And then I said, let's look in your family history. And two, well, her mother's favorite brother was killed in Korean War when the mother Mm -hmm. was 16. And this was her beloved brother, the brother who was everything to her. She loved, loved, loved this brother. And she was 16 when he died. So that was one thing that happened. And then the woman's father, when, when he was 16, he lost his dad, who he adored suddenly, when he was 16, of a massive stroke. And she's the only child in the family, so she carried the unresolved trauma of both parents: her mother's trauma losing the brother, the father's trauma losing the dad when both of them were 16. Now you can see how the verbal mm-hmm. trauma language is linked to the nonverbal of these physical things that happened.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And even just to like, as that sort of hitting home with myself, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I, I think my mom was 27 when she gave birth to me. And I was in the end of my 27th year when I sort of started to have a crisis of a break in my sort of self con- uh, self-concept and sort of starting to crumble in, in different ways physically and emotionally. So I think that's an interesting correlation there.
1: Right. If we looked at the language, both your verbal and your nonverbal language, for example, I'd say, hey, and we don't have to do this here, but Ryan, tell me some of the thoughts. What were you thinking? What was your worst fear when you had this crumbling at age 27? And and mm-hmm. you know, there very well could be alike. And we could also even look um, further to your dad's family and even Beyond that to the generation before, and absolutely
0: yeah, well, I think I mean that's when the sort of real concept of that there's something wrong with me really set in because I went through a breakup and I didn't really understand why, so I was just like, yeah,
1: there you uh, go, looking now you that. just connected you just connected a nonverbal piece of language, mm-hmm. so I went through a breakup and lost the person closest to me mm-hmm. When she, and it happened 27 years earlier when my mom was 27 and has the ski accident mm-hmm. and feels that she lost the person closest to her, which was her fetus. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, and at the same time, is the language, there's something wrong with me, mm-hmm. which is what mom instills after the trauma of the ski accident. So yeah, there's many ways that's connected. Brilliant connection. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's so interesting, so um sticking with the sort of topic of core language and sort of the verbal and nonverbal that's something that is it really struck me with your work and also some of the better therapists or health practitioners I've listened to is this their ability to listen themselves and spot those patterns in language and word choice, and I imagine that's something that um was a part of what you learned from Bert Hellinger, but I, I also imagine you've evolved that with your own process and developed this kind of concept for yourself. And that's what you train a lot and seems to be a huge key to sort of unlocking these um, traumas and constellations.
1: I, I actually, you know, Bert, Bert's my greatest teacher, Bert Hellinger. But uh, before that, I, you know, was trained as a poet oh. and uh, published poems in the New Yorker and all sorts of um, uh, living and hearing and and turning experience into language has always been with me ever since I was a child. So I've been listening to language in this way deeply. Uh, you know, it's even before I met Bert. In fact, I remember sharing with Bert, hey Bert, I found a connection um, to people's worst fears and the, and what they describe in the language they'll use to the traumas that happened in the family history. So, yeah, that's been with me a very long time. And developing this idea of the core fear, what I call the Mm -hmm. core sentence, which is the answer to this question of um, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? What's your worst fear? I talk about this in the book in a whole chapter. If things suddenly went wrong, if things went terribly, terribly, terribly wrong and suddenly fell apart, things went south. What's the worst thing mm-hmm. that could happen to you? And then I help tease out in the book, in that chapter, um, and distill down this type of language to get it into our core sentence. And that's the sentence that we put on top of our genogram, our family tree, when we start looking for the traumas, which is what I che- teach in chapter, I think, um uh mm-hmm. eight and nine, um uh, or seven and eight, something like that. No, I think it's eight in chapters eight and nine in the book. Um, and and uh, you're right. I, I, I think listening to our own, teaching the listener to become a detective mm-hmm. of his own or her own trauma language is one of the most important things we can do. Teaching us to be detectives of our own symptom history, teaching us to be detectives of our own trauma picture and looking at the events in our own life. As pieces of the puzzle that we can follow rather than being victims of our own trauma events, becoming detectives of our own trauma events
0: that's you know such an important point to make that we sort of take responsibility and control of, of our, our lives in that way and that can be with like these trauma patterns but also in our diets and exercise and it really is up to us to to look at that honestly and make those new choices. Another thing I was going to just comment on is um, developing those sentences for ourselves is um, a really interesting process. And, you know, often I think before getting into this work, many of us can feel very alone if we're suffering from some sort of chronic issue. Um, but in reality, there's only 20 or 25 of these statements that almost everyone falls under. And it's very sort of common and like bonding experience <laughs> to discover that, I think.
1: Uh, thank you. It's, it's exactly, it uh, was my amazement to discover also this idea that, boy, there's only like 20, 25, 30, 20 of these sentences and they go in one or, one of two directions. They either go into a, an attachment direction um, of I'll be alone. I'll be rejected. I'll lose everything, um, uh, there'll be no one there, or they go into a generational direction. If I'll do something terrible, someone will die because of me, I'll be hated. Uh, you know, these are the types of sentences that we distill down when we get down to the very bottom. And it's comforting to know, just like you said, I love the way you put it, which is, um, yeah, we're all the same, reeling mm-hmm. from a sentence, which I say in the book, it's either a life sentence. That we're living under, or the sentences that can take us out of our own um, trauma by by loving it, by exploring it, mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. Uh, following it, and letting it lead us.
0: And I think you know, for a lot of people, myself included, early on, like really looking under the hood in my own life, the idea of being like examining that relationship with my parents might be very scary. But it feels like there's a huge. I mean, the other two like mirrors where that seems to show up the most is in our romantic relationships and also our relationships with money. And I wonder if you feel like those are also areas that we could maybe start to look at if we feel too scared to look deeply at our parent relationship.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, what what starts at home sets a template or a blueprint. I I say in the book, you know, our early relationship with our mother um, is a template for the partner. Whether and our relationship with our father as well, but um, we are in relationship first, in utero, in body with our mom. And what's early and unfound there often reveals itself in our relationship with the partner. For example, if we felt ignored, unseen, if we felt our mom was distant, um, you know, it can show up many ways. For example, it can show up in, with our partner. We'll choose somebody who ignores us, or we feel unseen. They're distant, but it can also be um, the experience we have with ourselves. For example, we're distant with ourselves. Our young parts are unseen by us. Um, they don't feel seen by us. So it's it's um, we can turn that in many different ways. And then you know, people say, "Hey, I want to come work with my." Feelings of money or or jobs or abundance and mm-hmm. having enough and getting enough, of course, where does that begin? Again with the mother. So the first place I look, even though I have a chapter in my book about financial challenges, and I talk about 19 different dynamics, um, the very first one that I would explore is: did we get enough? And were we able to receive from our mom? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's 18 others to explore as well. But, you know, she, sorry, mums, I don't mean to make it uh, all about you, but because you're, it's not really, but um, it's such an important job being a mom um, because our baby's inner core, her baby's inner core is built and developed on her attunement. You know, there's this great video online uh, that I, would love everybody in the world to see, call The Still Face Experiment and Edward Tronick. So put in the words Tronick, T-R-O-N-I-C-K, who's the psychologist, and then The Still Face, still, two words, Still Face Experiment, where he has the mother just not mirroring her 18-month-old baby for Mm -hmm. not even a minute or two and watching the baby go crazy when it doesn't have this necessary attunement that the baby starts then going insane and screaming and letting out this terror cry and then rejecting the mother and then pulling away from the mother. It's so amazing when we see this, that moms have the hardest jobs in the world. And, you know, if you ask me politically, we need to be supporting mothers and fathers but supporting mums mm-hmm. in that early experience to not rush back to work so early, and to have the support they need to be able to mm-hmm. raise babies that feel um, warmed by her love. Yeah. So, oh man, I could talk forever about that. But, but, but still, but still, yes.
0: Well, I think that is such an important point. And even just in the sort of society that we're living in currently, there's been the very sort of clear crack in uh, the fact that our sort of political constructs aren't sort of caring about people as much as they could be. And obviously the mother and child relationship is the most sort of intimate micro version of that. And it does really need to be nurtured more. I'm also curious to know how you would sort of describe the difference between how we relate to our mother Uh, Verse our father because I remember reading something that was saying that our our mother's job is to bring us into this world and our father's job is to teach us how to act in the world.
1: Oh, that's so beautiful. That comes as far as I know. I mean, maybe other people have said it, but that comes from my great teacher, Bert Hellinger. You know, he he would say that the job of the mother is to bring us into life, and Mm. and the child when it's young must experience the fullness of the mother. And Edward Tronick says she only needs to be attuned 30% of the time, 20, 30%. It's not like she has to be attuned 100%, but 20 and 30% is enough for the Mm -hmm. baby to receive enough. And then Bert Hellinger goes on to say, and then at some point, the mother takes the child over to the father and says, okay, I've brought the child into life. Now you take the child into the world and teach the child how the ways of the world, how to sell, how to buy, how to trust, how to uh, keep keep safe, how to secure, how to procure, how to provide, and the job. But often, there isn't this interplay between mm-hmm. mothering and fathering, and it gets broken in their relationship and in separations, or the mother can't turn the baby over because of her own childhood, or the father doesn't know to take the children. And so Mm -hmm. what happens is the babies don't get the opportunity to uh, be, you know, Hellinger would talk about this very important initiation process that happens, even if we look at where he learned it in Zulu culture, um, where, you know, the, the boy is literally stripped out of his mother's tent, pulled away from his mother's tent when he's 12 or 13, and circumcised at this age in Zulu culture and then thrust into the world of men where they send him in into an initiation process where he must pre- succeed at some great um, uh, journey. He goes into the hero's journey to mm-hmm. be to enter into the world of men. And likewise, the woman, uh, the girl, is pulled away from the father into the mother's care. So there's an age at which you know many cultures see age 12, 13 as the beginning of this initiation process for boys to return to their fathers and girls to return to their mothers to create this both unity and separateness, or the, to say it this way, this separateness that creates unity. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's quite non-dual. <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. then we return to this function where they can then share this experience of parenting uh, because both fathers and mothers are extremely important to our well-being and we need both.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely agree. There is a really big sort of lack in our modern culture of having that sort of time of a like a rite of passage moment where we sort of are able to create a new sort of individual version experience Oops, of ourselves, right. but then also that balance between the mother and father as well, rather than staying attached to the either one for too long and then becoming an adult and kind of remaining in that imbalance, I wonder. You know, for somebody like myself, or anyone who's say twenty five, thirty, thirty five, forty, who sort of discovered that they never had that sort of moment of rite of passage, is there uh, a remedy you might recommend for that?
1: I remember my my uh, telling my story in the beginning. My rite of passage doesn't happen till I'm in my thirties. Mm-hmm. So here I am, losing my vision, and I, I'm standing in line with these great teachers and thinking that I'm going to be acknowledged for what a good meditator I am, and instead the teachers say to me, go home and heal your relationship with your parents. And I'm all pissed off, Mm -hmm. thinking like, what are you telling me? You know, it's like, um, you know, and and I had to learn that I had to go home and re-experience, re-peel back layers of time and learn how to, let my parents into my heart again because I was broken from both of them. Mm -hmm. And in in doing so, you know, loving my father, I uh, became uh, very close to him. And loving my mother, I again learned to receive from her. And it was the unity of bringing my parents back into my heart and into my body's awareness that brings my vision back into Mm -hmm. my body. And um, so, yeah. I, I think that just as you put it, the rite of passage doesn't have to be any age. These initi- Just as you said, these initiation processes, they're lost in our culture for the most part. And there are ways, you know, of course, we can join men's group and women's groups, of course, but I would also say the real inception of the men's group is our father as a male. Mm-hmm. And the real inception of the women's group is our mother as the female. And if we can open our hearts, even if they parented all terribly and improperly, as they did, mm-hmm. because you know traumas create a, a lack of um, uh, richness in the parenting, uh, if we can get out of the idea of how wrong they did it and open to some aspect of, that lets us join back in their care, whether they're living or dead, um, it's healing for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, and I know just from my own experience, there's certainly a, uh, you know, a micro or a hero, hero's journey with my relationship with my own father, and it, you know, went from discovery to crisis to anger to grief and forgiveness, and then now I feel uh, uh, in this kind of state of a much more deeper love and acceptance, and uh, it's very freeing energetically
1: yeah yeah exactly well put
0: so i wonder you know as um a lot of people sort of my age and around that thereabouts are now becoming parents um what would your sort of recommendation be because it's pretty much impossible to avoid all trauma um so how is it best to like potentially mitigate it or just navigate it as as mindfully and intentionally as possible
1: Yeah, so if we or one of our kids is struggling, you know, with some unexplained symptom, um, depression, anxiety, uh, obsessive thought, phobia, a destructive behavior, you know, whether it's us or our kids, we've got to shake the family tree and see what falls out. We've got to, Mm -hmm. you know, what family secrets have been hidden? Uh, What stories never got told? What trauma has never healed all the way? And then we've got to do our work, our inner work. You know, we, you and I talked about this earlier, becoming detectives rather than victims of our trauma history. Mm-hmm. And then we've got to talk about these traumas. And our family, try to work through them so they're not passed on to future generations. Because the more we know about these traumas, the more we can talk about them, and the more we can then bring relief to our kids and to their children, who could be suffering without a clue, as do I. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I found out that the more, you know, that if we ignore the past, it comes back to haunt us. I mean, that's not a new line. We all know that. Um, the more we explore it, the more we don't have, have to repeat it. And we can break these destructive patterns. And then lastly, um, we need to have a positive experience that can calm the brain's stress response. What I was talking about earlier—some type of experience that has meaning for us—and then make it a daily practice to change our brain. You know, it can be a practice of of, of feeling strength or comfort or support. It can be a practice of mindfulness or gratitude. Mm-hmm. Or loving kindness or generosity or compassion, you know, something, a state like this that feeds the prefrontal cortex. But because we've got to pull engagement away from the midbrain, the limbic brain, the amygdala, and we've got to bring engagement to other parts of the brain, specifically the forebrain, the prefrontal cortex where we can integrate it and we can heal these destructive patterns, you know, um, the idea, we talked about this earlier, is staying with the sensations in our body, um, staying with the sensations of compassion, staying with the sensations of love and kindness, staying with the sensations of generosity, because this feeds the prefrontal cortex. So our brains really can change, and our stress responses can quiet. Not only that, we also can um, uh, release sensations in our brain, like uh, uh, neurotransmitters. We can release feel-good neurotransmitters like dopamine or serotonin or GABA every time we do one of these practices. You and I talked about this practice six times a day, mm-hmm. but every every time we do this, we can we can um, not only create new neural pathways, but stimulate the release of feel-good neurotransmitters or feel-good hormones like estrogen or oxytocin. Or you even said this earlier we can even change the way our genes respond, the way our genes are involved.
0: Yeah, no, I think, you know, one thing I, I appreciate about sort of your workshop and listening to you talk is this sense of optimism and excitement. And it just makes me, th- you know, think sometimes as well, like it's it's sort of an incredible defense system that our system internally is able to create these ways of trying to keep ourselves safe over generations and passing down these you know, they're sort of shadow tools, but tools to keep ourselves safe and out of harm's way. But then it's even more magical that we have the ability to change these and heal these within a lifetime.
1: Yeah, it really does sit in our lap, doesn't it? You know, for our kids to do well, for our relationships to go well, uh, we've got to do our inner work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then we've got to talk about it, tell our kids what happened. Don't, don't keep secrets about you know grandpa having a car accident or um and killing somebody or or we getting drunk when we were 16 and causing a death of a friend we've got to tell these things
0: yeah i think that that's such an important point and it was the next thing i wanted to make note of is just you know we're so accustomed to not sharing those types of events and things that have happened and burying them down within within ourselves to protect ourselves but also protect Our family or friends or whomever that may be. Um, And I'm still guilty of doing that. You know, the idea of not sharing, you know, isn't lying and you're just kind of leaving out some of the truth. But in reality, all of that is going to come out and just not in a positive way unless we really share it intentionally.
1: You know, people ask me, Mark, what do you, when you look at how this stuff continues on to the next generation? You know, what makes these traumas repeat? And what, what I've seen, in, most of us have trauma in our family histories, Ryan, you know, but not everybody manifests this inherited trauma. And why do some people seem to relive and others don't? You know, epigenic, epigenetics, and mm-hmm. you know, we talked about that, so that's only one piece of the puzzle. But what seems to anchor these traumas, in my experience, what seems to create these repetitions is when traumas aren't talked about. Or when the healing is incomplete because the pain or the grief is too great or the embarrassment or the shame, you know, or the people in our family history, um, uh, they're excluded or they're rejected. You know, we don't want to talk about them because grandpa Mm -hmm. had an affair and left grandma, so he's the bad guy. And then for the next three generations, people are leaving their partners and having affairs because nobody's uh, bringing grandpa back into the fold. Basically, there's not been any resolution. Then aspects of these traumas they show up in later generations, and unconsciously will repeat the pattern or share a similar unhappiness until that trauma has a chance to heal. Mm-hmm. I mean, Freud Freud observed this hundred years ago when he talked about repetition compulsion that that these traumas repeat uh, the contraction continues because it's ultimately seeking it's expansion. I like Mm -hmm. to look at it that way. You talked about looking at things in a positive way. I like to say that the traumas, the contractions are continuing to repeat because they're ultimately seeking expansion. So every time something contracting happens, it's giving us an Mm -hmm. opportunity to
0: seek expansion. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I wonder as well, um, you know, as you're sort of teaching and sharing this information and people are coming to it, it feels like it would be an amazing sort of topic to be exploring universally more so through uh, school and education, things like that. But we might be a little ways away from that. Do you find in the courses and and workshops you've taught that there's more younger people starting to get involved or is it sort of an older person that's generally coming to it?
1: No, no, I find that You know, and even as you experienced in L.A., there's tons of young people in the workshop. And I teach this in universities and uh, psychiatric hospitals and clinics and um, graduate schools and social work. I mean, people are open. Mm -hmm. This is now in the zeitgeist. This is now Mm -hmm. um, a real studied field where we're looking at um, inherited trauma, not just as a possible concept but as um you know as yeah there's something to this and you know the the neuroscientists are turning in this direction and uh the researchers were now able to see you know mm-hmm. I, I can talk about some of the new research before we end here that um what's been fascinating is that you know they can traumatize mites in workshops or uh, not workshops <laughs> in in laboratories and then they could see there's these physiologic effects of the traumas. For instance, they can see there's alterations to the um, non-coding RNA. I mean, RNA, that's copied from DNA. And it acts as a messenger to instruct the cell's ribosomes to produce proteins, specific proteins. But that's in our cells. But cells also contain small non-coding RNAs that don't produce proteins. And they piggyback on the messenger RNA interfering with or amplifying their function, causing more or less of these proteins to be produced, which cause the genes to be activated or silenced. So they can do this in labs and and see this for three generations in the mice. But now they're looking at the humans. There's this one researcher named Isabel Monsui at the Brain Research Institute at the University of Zurich. And she's looking at Pakistani orphans right now that have experienced chaotic early years, similar to what she's able to induce in labs with the mice. And she's noticing that these babies, these kids, these humans that have had unpredictable separations from their mothers, um, their changes in their bodies, changes in their levels of Uh, fatty acids, changes in their blood, changes in their saliva um, uh, that mirrors the changes in the traumatized mice and similar small non-coding RNA alterations um, that are in the mice and in the children, similar biomarkers. She also recently has been looking at the um, survivors of that terrible Mm. attack in Nice, in France, where that guy drove up on the sidewalk and killed 80 people. She's finding changes in their blood, the survivors, that correlate to the blood of the traumatized mice in the lab. So, you know, this field, even though it's a new lab um, and the mechanisms of transmission aren't completely clear yet, um, there's enough clear and enough studied where we're able to say, yeah. all right, there's something to this. Let's get to teaching it. So in answer to your question, um, I'm finding the audience is younger and younger and more educated, and more um, uh, studied. So I bring this work into the hospitals, into uh, fourth-year psychiatry residents I teach, um, into uh, graduate schools, um, teaching centers, mm-hmm. because we've got to get this message out, that when we, f- bottom line, I mean, this is the last thing I'll end with. When we feel something, it may not be ours. Like the name of my book, it didn't start with you. When we feel something, we may carry the effects of it. We may carry the feelings or the fears, but they may not be ours. They may be the uh, effects of trauma that happened to our parents and our grandparents. And we need, you and I, we need to make this link so mm-hmm. that we don't just think, oh, this is just the way I am. We, 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 we turn toward our family histories. And we do some research e- and we, um, even if we don't know what happened, you know, just, we don't even need to know what happened, actually. If we carry it, if it's in our behaviors, if it's in our trauma language, verbal or nonverbal, it's enough to look backwards instead of just saying, mm-hmm. hey, there's something wrong with me.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for your time today and for sharing this.
1: No, oh, it's my pleasure. What a nice talk with you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be on your show and pleasure to get this message out there.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely excited to share. I definitely learned a lot about myself and beyond from both your book and your workshops and highly recommend both of them.
1: Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And you know, if there's any way I can be a resource for you, you just let me know.
0: Wonderful. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Whether you listen to it on Spotify, Apple, or through our website, it would be great to hear your feedback and thoughts. If you're able to leave a review, it'll really help us share the message and share the podcast with more people. Thank you.